Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavanagh here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Today is Sunday, the 24th of the 4th. For this episode, a couple of things we're going to touch on. The first, a uh, sort of legal mutton dressed as lamb, I think would be the way you'd call it, Michael. The second, the government's dedication to ensuring that Ireland replicates everything that led to the rise of racial tensions in Europe. And finally, we answer the age-old question, Michael. Yeah? What does it mean for an NGO to say it's 100% independent? of government and big business? Because you might be surprised by the answer. Well, it's the question on everyone's lips, so I'm sure we're all eager to know the answer. So we'll start with the uh, mutton dressed as lamb. This, mostly because, Michael, I want to hear your reaction when I give you the government's explanation for why they're doing this. Okay, what's the mutton and what's the lamb, Gary? Helen McEntee has come out and said that this government is finally, after too long, Michael, going to make it an offence to stalk someone and an offence to non-fatally strangle someone. They're going to make it... You know what? Finally, Gary. Finally. The number of times it's happened to me, and I'm sure it's happened to many of the listeners out there, you go down to the guard barracks, you say, listen, last night I got my, I got, I got uh, non-fatally strangled again by that... You see that guy outside with the night vision goggles and the balaclava? Yeah, that's my stalker. Yeah, him. He did it... I'm So, come on, could you use it? And they say, I'm, you know what? We'd love to do something, sir, but until the minister moves on this and passes legislation what can you do i mean non-fatal strangulation for most people it's a harmless hobby but obviously for you and your stalker you know it's an issue but hopefully the minister finally gary so can you explain to a reasonable person in words of one syllable why we needed a law to make something illegal which was already illegal well i, I can give you the words of helen mcintyre on this michael because the average reaction even amongst many people involved in the legal profession was but aren't those things illegal already yeah like you, you can't really make things extra illegal or so well actually maybe you can Oh, Michael, Michael, that's what you think. But let me tell you why they are doing this in the words of Helen McEntee. Yeah, Cato. Because evidence suggests that having a specific offence leads to greater public awareness and to an increase in the number of cases being reported and prosecuted. <laughs> So no, let that be no, a lesson no, no, to the no, listener. No, 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 if you no. have ever been stalked or non-fatally strangled, but were too afraid to go to the guards in case they said, that person who wrapped their hands around your neck but didn't kill you, well, that's just not a crime. You can now go to your guards and they will treat it as seriously as they should. No, 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 hold on, hold on, rewind it, come on. The, the serious premise of this... The serious premise of this legislation is that by creating a specific crime of non-fatal strangulation, people will now be more aware and will report it because previously pe- people weren't sure if being half strangled. <laughs> no, 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 stop, hold on. And let me get me, I want to get my head around here. That they didn't believe that when someone put their arms and tried to choke you, that that got, is, is this a crime? Is this not a crime? I mean, the question, surely here the question, Gary, is either how stupid is Helen McEntee or how stupid does Helen McEntee think the people of Ireland who are being half strangled are? Because somebody in this equation, Gary, is very fucking stupid stupid indeed. Michael, it's about sending a message and showing that we're serious about these things. But here's the interesting one. So that's the explanation for stalking, that it'll raise public awareness of stalking. The explanation of why non-fatal strangulation is being added is pretty much what I thought it would be. But the way the government talk about it kind of makes victims of domestic abuse, it, well, let's just say it doesn't, doesn't paint them in a very good light, Michael. Because what they say is, 
It's hoped that by creating this new offence of non-fatal strangulation will encourage victims to come forward and report what has happened to them. So can we confidently expect legislation to cover non-fatal beating around the head with a frying pan or non-fatal whipping with uh, a leather belt, non-fatal glassing with a broken wine bottle. I mean, this seems to me to have created a whole new market in legislation for all of those things that you thought we already knew were illegal. All sorts of gradations and colours and tones and nuances. I mean, if it seems to me right now, this could be a fantastic time to go into the business of writing legislation because Helen has just opened up a whole new world. Now, dreadful, horrible sarcasm aside, I kind of can understand the thing with, with stalking because I think a lot of people are, may, wouldn't necessarily be sure what constitutes stalking and what constitutes just somebody being a pain in the arse and what is legal and what is illegal. And I don't know if necessarily all of the guardy out there are completely sure themselves either about what it is. So I'm, I'm willing to give them a pass to a degree on that. But non-fatal strangulation, it would have seemed to me that if somebody puts their hands on you with violence, that's been illegal for a very long time. This, this is not a modern offence, Gary. Hands-on with violence has been a crime, you know, I think, pretty well as long as there have been crimes. Yeah, anything to do with the neck traditionally has been treated quite seriously. Well, yeah, the neck and the breathing and the and the, 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 the and the neck and the continued living and that yeah all those oxygen intake yeah, yeah that kind yeah, of stuff yeah. and the neck breaking and the brain and all that shit and the vagal nerves and tended to be treated pretty seriously so the um the justice department by the way this entire press release repeatedly refers to research but at no point says what research is referencing and the department I, I assume there is research for all of this because this is actually a fairly well-researched area. But um, it's a constant thing that McEntee and the Justice Department do particularly. They just say there's research for things. Like, remember they said there was research for how many illegal immigrants are in the country, Michael? Well, you see, that's the thing, Gary. There may indeed be research, but it's also possible that research is a steaming pile of shite. Well, let me just put it this way, Michael. The last two FOIs I put into the Department of Justice have not come back with that research. Although I do have another FOIM with the Department of Actually, I'll start from the start here. I have so far put in, I think, somewhere between six and eight FOIs with the Department of Justice, of which they have answered one of them. And in answering it, uh, because they had earlier rejected it, I was able to go, in your earlier rejection, you say you have all of these files. Uh, Where did they all go in this one you've given me? And then they're like, oh, we'll get back to you. They were meant to get back to me two weeks ago. I appealed it. Yeah, the FOI Act is a bit of a mess, but the Justice Department seems to willfully just not bother answering if they think it's embarrassing. You know what, Gary? I, I, I don't know if we wanted to cover this or maybe later, but it just does strike me in the context of this conversation that it's a particularly fertile moment for the Department of Justice in coming up with new and interesting ideas. Uh, generally, all sorts of new and interesting legislation being considered. Do you ever get that feeling that we're doing stuff without properly considering the consequences of it? Like, let's say, for instance, um, and I can understand the drive behind doing this, and I can understand the good intentions, but let's say saying anyone who has a Ukrainian driving license is qualified to drive on Irish roads, despite the fact that uh, Ukrainian driving statistics, Michael, are a bit higher than Ireland. Also, it happened immediately after Helen McEntee came out and said she was reconsidering allowing uh, Ukrainian refugees in her home uh, because, you know, they wouldn't be able to drive and then they'd be stuck there doing nothing. And this is rather unfortunate, but Helen is not alone in her reconsideration. I don't know if you saw some of the numbers of one of the... I think, was it the Red Cross said that 
of the 20 was it 24,000 offers they had received from private families or individuals to home uh, refugees uh, 50% had reconsidered i can understand that people in perfectly good faith and with an impulse to do a good thing will have made an offer and then on reflection or perhaps on then on consultation with other members of the household whose response was oh Don, where are they going to sleep where, where are we going to put them what are we going to do so on and so forth may have felt that actually it was not sensible or practicable for them so to do but this in the context of you know of people making offers and then rethinking them like the the offer or whatever it is not the offer but the pot the almost policy intent that we're going to house two hundred thousand refugees uh and then discover we don't have anywhere to put them and then rather carry rather than say you know what while we will return to this in the future when we have sorted out how we're going to house them how what we're going to do you say well you know the people who are going to offer to help voluntarily well we're going to maybe slightly devolunteerize uh, their their desire is this is this the reporting of Helen McEntee and the we will try and avoid taking people's property? The report, as we see, is not as as far as I can see and understand it is not. This is not a quote, so I'm I'm willing to hang back and wait and see until I, I can find the actual quote. It may be it's a paraphrase, but the language is very much. I'm sorry to say the cliche, but what the fuck? What was it? We will avoid, if possible, introducing legislation to uh, make it mandatory for people to open properties or don't give. Basically, saying to people, you know, if if you don't volunteer, well, then maybe we'll just make you volunteer. And you're thinking, really? Are you serious? Yeah, it was a conversation we had in Gripped when the original reporting of it came out. Because if McEntee has come out and said that anything that may even sound like they're considering activating certain constitutional provisions, that would be a massive story. But we haven't been able to find if it's actually what McEntee said or if it's, you know, a paraphrasing of something longer that isn't quite quite exact. Now... We've already had the media talking about this because this is a fantastic story and, you know, being correct has never stopped anyone. There have been a couple of legal professionals saying things like, well, the Constitution does give the government scope to do certain things in the name of the common good. And that's true. But, but I I do not see them swinging something like this. Not through the courts, not for people who aren't citizens, not for people who they have invited in as a matter of policy and i'm not even sure they could show it is for the common good i think you could make a very decent argument that it's the opposite of the common good insofar you're going to violate citizens right to private property also not just private property one of the, i mean and remember while the constitution has strong protections of private property and gary would say yeah but the irish constitution is full of so many holes because of the qualifications that those guarantees are not that important yeah i'd respond on the other hand since the 19th 50 certainly we have seen a whole series of high court and supreme court judgments which have created a jurisprudence around private property in ireland which means private property is very heavily protected we're not simply talking about private property here gary we're also potentially talking about the home 
and the home is even more protected in Irish constitutional law than simple private property and the right and the, the, the protections of the of the home the family the pride and the, the you know, every irishman's home in his castle kind of thing is and you're i think you could argue that actually to for to break the protections on private property and to invade to forcibly invade that's the space which is the home it would be actually the opposite of being conducive to the to the protection of the common good also, and, that, and the point you make, I think, is well is is important. That this is a this 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 is something which is a consequence of the government voluntarily inviting people into the state. Now, I'm not saying that 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 we don't have a moral duty, like the rest of the Western world, and not just the Western world, to to, to take in to take in refugees and to these people who are suffering as a result of this unprovoked act of aggression by the Russians. Women and children are in houses; they're being shelled and attacked and bombed and whatever. Absolutely, but you're going to go to, to you're going to pass legislation and and hope that the courts are going to find that this is okay because you're doing this in in the name of the of the common good. I, I, I don't I don't buy that at all. I don't get that. But it's I suspect Gary, if this does reflect current thinking, that this is an example of somebody thinking off the cuff. And saying, well, maybe we could do something like that, but then I would hope to God, two or two days later, everybody would sit down and say, no, no, lads, that's just no, no. We're going to have we're going to have to find another way of doing it because that that's not going to fly. I mean, the thing here is that this may not have been something McEntee even brought up. They may just the media may just be wrong. Actually, I saw an interesting case of that during the week, Michael, on a really unimportant thing, but it was something I was able to immediately say, okay, well, that's just not right, and it was this. Have you seen these reports, Michael, that Ben Dunn has shut down six gyms? Well, uh, even though, as people know me, I, I, I am constantly checking up on the state of the gym industry in Ireland because of my own interests. No, that story had eluded me. It's been in RTE, The Independent. I think it's actually been in most of the papers at this time. And Michael, it lists the gyms that have closed down. And I've got to say, Michael, I found this a bit weird uh, because I had been in one of those gyms the night before. And it was giving the impression of not being closed down, was it? I mean, the staff seemed very sure the gym was open and that they were being paid to be there. Right. And then I went there the day after the article came out and the gym was still open. Now, I primarily went there the day after the article to see was the gym open. And again, the staff seemed totally unaware that according to nearly every major news organisation in the country, they were closed. <laughs> It's always fun, isn't it, when you see a story, whether it's in a paper abroad or at home, and they're t- and they're giving you some fact that you absolutely, positively, definitely know from your own direct personal experience is just bullshit. It, there's a, there's a certain there's a, a a pleasure to that, and it's a, it's a lesson we should we should keep closer to our hearts and our minds a lot of the time when we read as we do often our newspapers uncritically. Uh, sorry, by the way, did the staff give any indication or knowledge that? They were under threat of closure or there was a problem? What the uh, what the staff actually said was that as far as they knew, uh, they think that whoever gave the initial report had meant to say NACE and had said Navin or, you know, they said NACE and people heard it as Navin. So, and, and no one bothered to check. Everyone used the first report that came up and just copied each other. 
So there's just a long story. I think Breaking News were the people who, who first put the story up and everyone just copied them. Maybe a press release went out, but no one attempted to check. And if you go onto the Ben Dunn website, the Navin Gym is clearly one of the open gyms. Right. The only people in this country, Michael, who have correctly reported which Ben Dunn gyms actually closed was gripped. Well, you know, Gary, the small stories are, they're important too. Yeah, but it does kind of, you know, speak to the need of someone to go, has anyone bothered to check if we're actually right before we say this? Yeah, it, you know the old scripture injunction uh, in the Gospels where it says, he who is, who I can trust in small things, I shall trust in great. There's a little bit of that about it, perhaps. If they're getting these details wrong, why should we believe they get the other details right? Well, there is that sort of thing of, you, know, you assume that they get these things wrong because these are small things and therefore unimportant. But I've generally not found that people incapable of doing simple things should be trusted with complex things. So if we're talking about all these things that the government can do wrong to try and follow the path of some of the European countries that had the most trouble with uh, racist attitudes, I think it's important to point out at this time that all of the issues that have arisen uh, from this are not natural products of the Ukrainian war. The issues we're now seeing are products of government policy. And not only are the issues arising out of government policy, but they were obviously going to arise out of government policy. Michael, I work on the basic, very simple principle that if you or I can immediately look at a policy and see that while it might be moral, it might be ethical, it might be whatever, on a practical level, it's problematic. Yeah. The departments themselves and the ministers, therefore, should probably also realise that, given that they're staffed with hundreds of people whose job it is to look out for things like that. You would think so, but historically, history has, has shown us that this actually doesn't, the way things work. No, so we, we make promises initially. That we will take in uh, you know, however many refugees. It ends up being talk of 200,000, although that was always put there as an estimate of the very top end. And we keep saying there will be no caps on this. And then events happen. Events, dear boy. And we have to, because you know we've given a word, Michael, we have to start suddenly doing other things so that we can try and keep our word. And suddenly we're doing things that we always thought would be too far for you know, solving problems like homelessness to the extent that a government can solve a problem like homelessness. And to be honest, I think to a large degree it can't. Or the housing crisis. And now then you create a situation where people are now looking at you going, you spent 10 years saying that that was impossible to do. Yeah. You did it in two weeks. And I think the thing that we should take out of this, I think the, the actual thing that's really interesting here, is how much of politics and how much of what we think are these large debates about where society should go and what we should do are largely limited just by what the people involved think is you know, the respectable uh, choices before them. Oh, absolutely. I don't, I've, I don't doubt that at all. And that has... That has been my sad experience of dealing with politicians, I'd say, in the last 15 years or more. It, is, it has become a very jading experience dealing with Irish politics. They, they don't do, and they will not necessarily do what is right, or at least what they think is right. They won't do what they think is efficient or efficacious. They will even back policies which they, in their hearts and their brains, believe to be actually counterproductive. 
but they do them because they are the idea which is at that moment considered to be the respectable position and what they would like to do is not respectable therefore they don't attempt it it's like the old saying no one ever got fired for hiring someone from harvard and actually we've, we've talked about this before a lot about how departments and organizations and politicians will oftentimes act in a way that they don't think is going to work because it means that they can't get blamed if it goes wrong because you have hired someone from Harvard. You have done the respectable thing. And if it didn't happen, well, it was what every respectable person wanted to happen anyway. So no one can blame you for it going wrong. And if everybody else was saying the same thing, well, then how can you be in particular to be blamed? And particularly if you're following a line, which is the popular line in the media, in the press and in the electronic media, it's much more difficult for the media to sharpen their knives and come after you with an axe. Oh, absolutely. You start pushing for things that, let's say, the NGOs or the media don't like, and it doesn't go well. No. Oh, no, then no, there's no. going to be no mercy. No, that's, that, that's the way to perdition. I've said before there's a a prominent politician and this is just one example I don't want this man in particular but this is I can remember back in the days when he was a young wet behind the ears politician and in his office on his bookshelves he had books the constitution of liberty and the road to serfdom by Friedrich Hayek he had books by Robke the German economist he had Ludwig von Mises uh, Milton Friedman, uh, the Price of Liberty, and all this, all this kind of stuff, absolutely convinced, intellectually convinced, free marketeer who believed in it not just on a philosophical kind of libertarian basis, but also simply that this is what works. Nothing in his career, and it's been a reasonably substantial career, would ever give you suspicion that this man believed any of these things. Like if you were a guy from Mars and what came down and looked at the policy, the policies that he has worked with and supported and proposed over his time, there's no way that you would be able to deduce from that what was on his, the books on his bookshelf. And that's kind of, that is to me a little bit more than depressing. Well, thank God, Michael, that that person never became the Minister for Finance. Because that would have been a a crushing disappointment. You could say that, Gary. I couldn't possibly comment. There is a slightly more serious, potentially more serious thing. And I think this is generally, this is true, shall we say, the the general way that this uh, government is handling the Ukrainian uh, crisis. And I suppose we should try and be reasonably fair about it, Gary. Obviously, they're having to deal with this on an ad hoc basis. They're dealing with it on the hop. This is a, a a crisis which came out of nowhere pretty well. I mean, most of us hoped, believed this war wouldn't happen. Then suddenly it happened. Suddenly you have not thousands or tens of thousands, but millions of people displaced in Europe again. Uh, they have to go somewhere. We have correctly said we will take in people. So we're a country dealing with, as a consequence of gross incompetence in our politicians, a housing crisis which people like myself and yourself have been talking about for years and we're talking about a housing crisis before it would anybody officially confess there was a housing crisis but there you go so the fact that we haven't places to give them is also their responsibility issues say arising about housing about the notion that people are going to that there's going to be at least pressure put on people to allow certain kinds of properties or spare or empty spaces to be used to house refugees the fact that they're talking about 
whether or not there should be special regulations or allowances made when it comes to the payment of certain kinds of social welfare uh, benefits. Uh, waves given waivers being given on things like uh, driving licenses and things. We know. I mean, we we've talked about this in other circumstances, in other contexts before, Gary, about how people react to, to to special treatment, and what drives resentment is not necessarily the sense that another group is being given help or is being given consideration to remediate historical issues but rather when there's a perception that there is an a lack of fairness and a lack of shall we say equal dealing that people are getting special consideration which is suddenly becomes possible where the same special dealing had not been available to other people when they were when they would have felt that they were in great need as well that can lead to resentment. And the last thing surely we want to do is to create a situation where these unfortunate people become the object of resentment and potentially, potentially become pawns for the use of extreme elements in, in politics in the country. Looking, looking at what happened in Europe since about 2000 in relation to immigration and refugees, I think it's pretty clear that the, the driver of a lot of the uh, trouble that ended up happening and the kind of political uh, movement against immigration and refugees in some of these countries was not driven by hate. I think you're right. It was driven by resentment and a feeling that whatever about helping people, things are happening that are unfair. And looking at some of the things the Irish government has done in relation to Ukraine, it's like they took that as a blueprint. Mm-hmm. So things like the announcement that uh, emergency powers are going to be granted to councils to buy home for Ukrainian refugees. I have yet to see anyone who thought this was a good idea. Even in the left-wing spaces I've checked out and the activists there I've talked to, who you would think would be positive about it, the only thing they have said about it is, well, if it could be done now, why couldn't it have been done a decade ago for Irish homeless or for people in direct provision a lot of people uh, on the left that I've talked on this are really just saying this as proof that the government is racist. Because if this can be done for certain refugees, white refugees primarily, right? why couldn't it be done uh, for the non-white refugees? Mm-hmm. It's a reasonable question to ask. I mean, I don't think this has done anything with skin colour. I think there has just been, there is a consensus amongst politicians and advisors and people in the kind of media and cultural elite that this is unlike other situations for reasons I think if you were to ask them they would not be able to properly articulate. Mm -hmm. It is simply the current thing that we must all feel very strongly about and agree with certain positions on and in a while there will be another thing and people will largely forget about this. You see, I can understand, and I can understand why they would be like that, and I can understand in a certain sense at the macro level why it looks like that. But Gary, say you're somebody fleeing from a war in the Congo. To you, as an individual human being, it'll be kind of hard to parse the difference between you fleeing death and destruction and war in the Congo and somebody else fleeing death and destruction and war in Karsk. Also, some of the the line of reasoning I've heard about why this should be treated differently 
kind of relating to, well, you know, we've got to show that the international order can stand strong and this sort of military adventurism will not be tolerated doesn't really hold up considering that there's been rather a lot of military adventurism involving countries in, shall we say, the developing world, Michael. Sure. And we've never had that kind of reaction. Now, I think you can make legitimate arguments that the Ukrainian situation is different for geopolitical reasons or in relation to sphere of power. But that's not what's being said. No, I, I, and I think there might be legitimate arguments. You could say that the particularity of the nature of Russia, the, the fact that it is one of the world's largest nuclear so nuclear powers, uh, the historical expan- expansionism of the Russian imperial mindset, and so on and so forth, and the statements that we've seen coming out of Putin and people close to Putin over the last number of years mean that a certain disposition, we have to take a certain stance in this case, that there are geopolitical consequences relating to Russia, relating to China, relating to the Middle East, to energy, all sorts of massive, which is not the case when you have wars, perhaps, in countries in the developing world. I, that's true. But that's not the story we're being told. No, no, that's, that's the thing. There, there are arguments there that are just not being said. And let's look at what the impact of, of those those powers for councils are going to be. So councils already had some ability to look into purchasing spaces, but this is going to expand it. Yeah. The first thing that's going to happen is that the council are going to start uh, buying homes, which sounds like a really obvious point. But the thing to remember there is that that means they're now in competition with members of the public trying to buy homes. Again, yes. Which would indicate that uh, it's going to be harder for, let's say, first-time buyers, Michael, to find houses. These powers are going to allow councils, particular powers, to buy uh, new houses, new built houses, or are they exclusively looking around empty properties or derelict properties, that kind of thing? So, well, there's actually there's two parts of that. There is, they're going to have the ability to go after, um, just to get homes for people. And then O'Brien, the minister, has said that um, he's seeking approval to expand the program to return vacant social homes to use. So I think there the question very rightfully becomes, Michael, if we could always do this, why have we never done it? Yeah, I would suspect, by the way, Gary, and, and, and this is just on the basis of some work that I did admit some time ago, so it may not, not it may not may not be true now, that while this kind of thing is great to talk about, that the actual potential to create an, a significant impact in a short space of time is negligible. That people vastly under overestimate the number of empty properties that are out there that are actually capable of being brought on stream in, rapidly for people to be able to use. No, I mean, the, there are some interesting things, particularly in Dublin with uh, second and third story spaces, which are unused, but most of them are unused because under current planning regulations, they're not they're not workable. You'd have to you'd have to you'd make significant changes to planning law. You'd also, I mean, you'd have to look at whether or not these places are actually in fact safe uh, for human habitation, even after you put in more than rudimentary changes. I mean, building stru- structural changes, and then you're going to Gary. You're also then going to have to find people. I mean, I know this might sound like a petty fogging quibble but you're you're also going to have to find people to do this work for you at a time when for when i talked to lads who were working as carpenters and plumbers around the country that it seems the the, the building industry is working 
I'd say, fairly near to capacity. The idea that you're going to be suddenly able to throw 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 these, go after these all these empty properties, and I don't think there are actually that many of them, and all these derelict properties, and again, I don't think there are that many of them, and transform them in short space of time into live into decent livable habitations. I'm skeptical. No, and Michael, as someone who's been trying to acquire a builder for some work, let me tell you, it is not easy to get a builder right now. There is not a lot of capacity out there. But we're talking about resentment, Michael. Yes. And we started the show by saying the government has kind of seems to be taking a look at what Europe did to cause problems for itself and seems to have taken that as a you know, just an outline of how to achieve something. If you want to talk about resentment, how do you think first-time buyers are going to feel when they start realising that councils are buying houses and giving them to Ukrainian refugees. Now, we can say morally that might be the correct thing to do. Mm. But that just seems like, you know, that's creating a stick to beat yourself with. Yeah, it does. Uh, And we go back to the same question we asked ourselves before. If all of this stuff was possible and all of these things were doable and practical, why, why why did we wait till now to do them? There is generally considered to be a moral obligation to help those less fortunate than yourself. But if you're enacting powers like this, you start running into the area of is there a moral obligation to ensure that those people you are helping have more than you do? Mm. And I'm not sure that's going to be a very popular message for the public. Yes, there was a polling in the Sunday Times today. They did a B&A poll. Uh-huh. Three out of five Irish people would like a cap on the number of Ukrainian refugees. Really? Yeah. And this is the problem with a lot of the public's response to things. The public are basically magpies. You know, there is the current thing, then there will be the next thing. And after a while, if you're still passing very advantageous things for the last thing, mm. people no longer feel they have to agree with you on it. And suddenly you're pushing for things that aren't popular. They may be moral, they may be ethical, but they're not politically helpful. It is rather interesting how quickly the government has gone from we are doing everything we can with relation to housing to, well, we've discovered uh, certain things may be possible. Well, that's events, dear boy, events. That's what drives politics as much as it drives history, I suppose. But it's... Right, we should say, I, I hope that, well, I suppose we should, principally what we all hope is that this war can, ends more quickly than I think it will, and that these people well, will be able to stay in their homes, which is where I'm sure they want to be, rather than being flown across Europe in order to sleep in a tent on the Curra. I mean, the Curra is very nice. Yeah, really? Probably not as nice as, you know, having a home. I can imagine having a nice, a nice house in the Carpathian Mountains is quite nice too, Gary. So we were talking about uh, respectable opinion and about politicians and, and trying to adhere to it and trying to adhere to media lines a lot of the time. It happens more than you think. It happens, I'd say, in every country, but in Ireland it can be particularly naked because a lot of politicians don't have ideological frameworks or beliefs. They came through constituency work. They're there because their family were there. That's not to say they're bad people. No, no. It's just if you're dealing with people who have very strong ideas and you don't have any strong ideas yourself, it's very easy to get influenced. And I wanted to talk about one of those groups that see themselves as influence makers. And there are a number of them in Ireland today. And some of them have very deep claws into some of the departments and some of the politicians directly. But the one I wanted to talk about today was um, was the Irish Council for Civil Liberties, Michael. Our old friends. Because I'm, I'm technically on holiday. 
But the ICCL put up a, a tweet there during the week, which uh, so galled me that I decided that my holiday should now consist of reading every ICCL account for the last seven years. That sounds like a holiday to me. It was actually pretty fun. I got to make a, a lovely Excel sheet. <laughs> and who doesn't love making a lovely Excel sheet? Oh, it, was, it was fantastic. The colours, Michael, the numbers, it had everything. I the problem with the new Excel programme, though, it doesn't do the lovely graphs the old one used to do. So the, the ICCL came out and said they were 100% independent of government and big business. They're not. But I wanted to just briefly touch on why it is, why they say these things, even when they're not true, and why they're important. And it's because of this. Irish NGOs crave being classed as representative, as if they represent something beyond themselves. Because if they don't represent something beyond themselves, what most of these groups are, are five to ten fairly progressive upper middle class people who have some ideas they'd like the government to do. Sorry, fair, fair, fairly progressive? What they need is they need to be classed as representative so it's not just them pushing their own ideas, it's them representing the views of the public. Yeah, absolutely. Who may be voters, but even if they're not voters, you know, these are people you can trust to speak for these people if you, you, know, you legitimately want to make the country better. So the Irish, the, the Council of Women... Is, is obviously not just, you know, a dozen or two dozen well-to-do women who've decided they have some ability to determine how the country runs, but is instead a representative of half the country's population. And if you take that away from them, they immediately lose a lot of their power. They, they lose their moral power, their moral authority. Well, I mean, Michael, you, these people are allowed in many cases to form part of the respectable opinions of society. And if suddenly it's not, they're not representative, they're not respectable. What they are is an example, and I'm yet again going to refer to that book that you put me on to, the, the Ruling the Void. And he talks about they are, this, they are part of this new manifestation of the thing, of the interest in stakeholder, stakeholders. And if they are, they represent like half the population, it doesn't matter what the policy issue is, Gary, they are stakeholders. And if they can get them, if they can finagle this ridiculous notion, narrative, that they are actually the body which represents women in Ireland, then they're always going to be on everything. They will be invited to every doll committee, every tribunal, every, every investigation that when it comes to appointing or setting up a new body at a government level, they will be consulted. In fact, they may even get a, a seat or two on the board ex officio because they are the body who represent women. Sometimes, Michael, in issues related to women, they may even be allowed to play an integral part in the formation of other bodies and the selection of who comes before the body. Yep. Okay, and this is why... That's one of the reasons the ICCL would come out and say they're 100% independent. But then they started talking about how they could only do this with their members. And that's the real kicker for a lot of these people. Funding. Yeah. If you are funded by the public, then you have a reason to be representative of the public because you need their support. But it's really hard to be funded by the public, as everyone in an Irish NGO knows. And as I mean, even Gript knows. Like a very small percentage of the people who read Gript uh, donate to it. But if no one donated to it, Grip would close. And these NGOs are exactly the same. Thank God for those right-wing neo-Nazis in America, Gary. Otherwise, where would Grip be? 
I mean, I was going to say thank God for those brave, those few, but you went a different direction, I suppose. So the reason that funding is interesting here is obviously if the funding is going to the public, well then, the public has different views. It's a large, disparate entity that may agree on something, some things, but which can't really pressure you as a group unless there's broad public support for the idea anyway. If, however, you are drawing all of your money from, let's say, three or four entities that all have views on things, and you need their money to keep operating, it opens you to being influenced by those groups. Now, that's not to say that those groups will tell you what you have to do, but why would you give money to someone who doesn't share your values? And so if you are a group like the ICCL, and you've had some financial troubles, as the ICCL has, and you need cash, you just need cash, it must be very tempting, Michael, to, shall we say, design certain programs in a way they may not have been entirely designed before, in order to ensure that you get the money that will allow you to continue operating and do your good work. And that, I think, is something that we do not talk about in relation to Irish NGOs. There have been times where substantial Irish NGOs that have had direct reach into government have been reliant on one or two people, or usually uh, trusts and foundations set up by one or two people, for their continued existence. And it would have been very easy for people to apply pressure to them, to push for certain things, to campaign in certain directions, to go in certain directions that they may not have gone. And I'm not saying that's ever happened with the ICCL, but the more you are reliant on one or two donors, the greater the risk of it. And as I said, it doesn't have to be even be that those people are trying to influence you. You might willingly change yourself in order to pick up additional funding, like um, Stonewall, when the transgender issue started coming up, there are certain reasons to go in certain directions and funding is a big part of that. And if we're going to make these things such a major part of determining what is respectable and what is allowable and the policies that we should chase, perhaps we should be paying more attention to who is paying these people. And you know what, Gary? It may not even be a, a, a conscious decision to go in a direction, but rather a simple organic almost evolutionary response to the environment that you find yourself in that you will in a, in the same sense that plants are phototropic you will go in the direction where you feel that you are going to be most in a position to achieve the ends that you need and you end up organically unconsciously being plastic in a way that maybe you're just simply unaware of it just occurs to me gary when we're talking about the nature of funding and the role and the influence that groups have and there's no doubt that several of these groups have very very significant and substantial influence on government that if we were going to go on the basis of donations being the equivalent of being representative the slightly odd thought occurs to me that if you're going to do that the organization in ireland which probably i am i i'm guessing could claim to have the single largest representative on the basis of the number of people that donate to it week in week out would actually be a thing called the catholic church but i don't think we want people would want the, the likes of them getting involved in government policy i mean the catholic church or probably the gaa uh, exactly the gaa the catholic church and maybe the vincent de paul and i mean michael there's a strong argument the both of those organizations 
have done more good for this country than uh, any of the others. But we wouldn't want to get into that discussion. If they are funded by the public, it plays into them being representative. And it means they have to look out for the public and what the public is concerned about. If, however, they are not funded by the public, well then, whose opinions exactly do they need to be concerned about? Really, the ultimate answer there is, well, whoever is paying them, because those people are the reason those groups continue to exist. And Michael, I had a look back through the ICCL's accounts, as I said. In 2020, 4% of the ICCL's total income came from membership fees and individual donations. A whopping 4%. A whopping 4%. Nearly all of the rest of it came from three or four large institutional investors. Donors, I think you mean. (laughs) Well, (laughs) some might say that, yes. Okay. And here's the, the real kicker about this. The ICCL has accepted massive amounts of funding from government monies through the EU, through the Irish, uh, the Human Rights Council, which is entirely state-funded, and through the European Commission. 22% of its income between 2018 and 2020, and I'm only, I know those are weird years, but 2020 is the last year we have, and 2018 is the first year they started splitting it so you could properly see who was giving them money. Right. But within that period, 22% of the ICCL's money came from It's government money, basically. But yet, Michael, they're 100% independent. But then you start looking at the large trusts that are giving them money. And all of these trusts, Michael, are linked to wealthy business people. So the big ones for the ICCL are the Sigrid Rousing Trust, which is led by the granddaughter of the Swedish industrialist who made the Tetra Pak. And I believe the Rousing family was the richest family in England, until Abramovich moved in. There's a lot of money in Tetra Pak. Billions, billions upon billions. Then you have the Open Society Foundation, which is funded entirely by George Soros, the billionaire financer. Then you have the Luminae Foundation, which is funded entirely by one of the founders of eBay. Sorry, the what foundation? The Luminate. <laughs> I'm sorry, could you, get cl- could you get any closer to Illuminati if you wanted to? I mean, that's someone, that's a trolling, that's a, that's an act of trolling right there. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's good. I like that. I'm not surprised you didn't know that, Michael. They don't. Uh, they don't tend to advertise it. Okay, so that's that's eBay. Mm-hmm. So we have eBay, and then the last one, and the last one is Atlantic Philanthropies, which came from um, Chuck Feeney's uh, duty-free shopping empire. So that's cool because that means we have everybody. We have the industrialists. We have the tech people, we have the finance people, and the retail people. 100% free of big business. Yeah, they're fairly big business. eBay, pretty big. Tetra Pak, pretty big. George Soros, fairly big. Now, I mean, you could say that, well, we don't take money from the business directly. We take money from the people who either own those businesses or made their uh, money in those businesses. You could say that, Gary, but you'd have to be a fairly sophisticated medieval scholastic philosopher to construct the argument in such a way that people didn't notice that you're actually just getting it from big business. So between 2018 and 2020, those four entities, the Rousing, uh, Sigurd Rousing Trust, Open Society Foundation, Luminate Group, actually, sorry, not the Luminate Foundation or Trust, Luminate Group. That's better. Yeah. (laughs) And Atlantic Philanthropies provided 40% of the ICCL's income. And then you have the 22% on top of that, which came from government money, 
we're already into majority territory, Michael, from from big business and government. Yeah. But this is the really interesting one, Michael. The third largest donor of the ICCL over that period was a group called the International Network for Civil Liberties Organizations. Now, they gave the ICCL €315,000. But here's the thing I found when I looked into this group, and I hadn't looked into them before. This group has an office in uh, in uh, Geneva, I believe. Very nice. Lovely, I'm sure. But what I noticed, Michael, is when I took the um, is when I took the address and I googled it. It was the address of a Swiss international family boutique firm focusing on wealth structuring and preservation for an exclusive clientele of high value families who say they're specialists in forming and managing trusts and corporate entities. I don't know. I haven't come across them. Yeah, they're called the uh, Alina Family Office. Right. Now, Michael, I can't say exactly what that group is, but I assume a Swiss wealth management fund is in some way linked to business. <laughs> At some stage, historically, yes, I imagine. I just, I just feel there's a connection there. But here's the really interesting thing, Michael. Yeah, go on. The contact point for the INCLO, uh, the International Network for Civil Liberties Organization, the ICCL's third largest donor, yes. asks that you direct any correspondence you intend to reach the INCLO with that wealth management firm by name. Really? Yeah. So you're saying the third largest donor to the ICCL, which is completely independent of big business and government, is a Swiss wealth management company. I'm not saying they're a Swiss wealth management company, Michael. I'm just saying that they ask that you send all of their mail directly to the Swiss okay, okay, <laughs> wealth I get you management now. company. They don't actually have anything to do with them, but those nice people handle their post. That funding from the chaps sharing that office with the uh, International Family Boutique was another 17% of the ICCL's income over that period. If that is linked to big business, and we can't tell if it is. No, no, absolutely. Then 82% of the ICCL's total income over 2018 to 2020 came from either government money or entities linked to big business. How are they 100% independent? And more correctly, how are they allowed to claim they are 100% independent? Well, you know what, Gary? The thing is, if you have clean hands and a pure heart doesn't matter where you get the money from the i'm told I, I seem to remember a quote from many years ago i don't think it was the, the i don't think it was i think it was the one of the late the late ali khan possibly who was the heir to the the grandfather of the present aga khan and who was the leader of the Ishmaeli muslims and somebody accused him of drinking wine which is of course haram and he said he was so holy that when the wine touched his lips it turned into water and the ICCLA is probably very like that, that even if that money comes in tainted in some sense by big business or government, once it passes through their hands, it becomes clean and pure because it is like them, clean and pure. I mean, I cannot doubt the sanctity of the ICCL, Michael, nor can I doubt my own, uh, my own degeneracy. And I, I think that might be why the ICCL has never responded to a single email or query or call I've ever sent them. <laughs> it's odd because of the two of us would have thought that the, I was the more likely to be the query. But anyway, go on. So I think we will leave it at that for today. We will be back next Sunday. There is no bank holiday. We are back in the office, as it were. And enjoy the good weather that we're promised to come. All the best. Bye bye.